Up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's show, we'll discuss the difference between a person who is intersex and someone who is transgender. What we're talking about this morning in intersex is physical development, how a person's body is formed, not how they feel themselves to be. Then we'll hear from a scientist who is working on a vaccine for the Zika virus. You know, we were able to take a couple of prototypes and, and do some of the very early, what we call preclinical, so pre-human um, work and move very fast and you know, demonstrate that this vaccine might potentially um, have some clinical benefit. And we'll learn what pet owners need to know about nutrition for dogs and cats. So the Healthy Pet Project is based on the fact that the top 10 things that go wrong with us are the top 10 things that go wrong with our pets. All that, a checkup from the neck up, and a selection from our healing muse, coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore a variety of health and medical issues from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll hear about how scientists are working on a vaccine that would guard against the Zika virus. Then we'll learn about the nutritional needs of dogs and cats. But first, we'll discuss what it means to be intersex with a pediatrician who specializes in this condition which occurs more frequently than you might realize. When a baby is born with sex characteristics that do not fit typical definitions of male or female, the medical term is intersex. This happens more often than you might imagine. Here to explain is Dr. Susan Stred, professor of pediatrics at Upstate Medical University's Joslyn Diabetes Center. Welcome, Dr. Stred. Good morning, Amber. So how often are intersex babies born? We may ever not ever actually know that answer. It's hard to know for sure. We'd have to have a consensus first on what's different enough from average to mm. count as a difference of sex development, um, also known as intersex. There's actually no consensus on how small a penis must be or how large a clitoris must be before it counts as an intersex condition. Some are more obvious. For instance, a baby boy where the opening for the urine is down on the uh, bottom of the body instead of at the end of the penis, that's pretty obvious. That's the most common one, and that's estimated to be about one in 150 baby boys. So that's reasonably common. And that opening can be anywhere along the bottom of the penis, the whole way to the bottom of the body, called the perineum. Um, Other disorders, perhaps one in 10 or 20,000 live births. There is one condition called ovotestis, where on the inside of the body, half of the ovary is an ovary and half of the ovary is a testicle. And that's a quite rare phenomenon. So to, to let us know how often it actually happens, um, we have to estimate. And estimates from specialists are that probably one in every 2,000 births at a hospital involves a child whose genitals are atypical enough to make the sex unclear that day. But if we count all kinds of abnormalities, including that the hypospadias, where the urinary tract opening is in a different place, it might be more numerous than one in 1,500. So one estimate even says that one in 100 persons has some kind of difference in sex anatomy. It may not be enough to consider it intersex, but enough that it might vary from typical to get people's attention. What we can say is that it's more common than the average person would probably guess, as you mentioned. If you're in a moderate-sized town, 
or in the kind of superstore that has several, you know, hundred customers at a time, there are probably people around you with a difference of sex anatomy. If you're in the Carrier Dome watching a sold-out basketball game, statistically, there are at least 15 people in the stands with hmm. an intersex okay. condition. Okay. Well, you've done a good job of kind of giving a definition, uh, you know, telling us what this includes. Um, does this have anything to do with being transgender? No, not at all. And thank you for asking that question. Transgender refers to a situation where the person feels that the gender they were assigned at birth, boy or girl, just isn't the right one for them, that there's been a mistake made. Um, that's an internal brain issue. Their external anatomy looks perfectly typical. What we're talking about this morning in intersex is physical development, how a person's body is formed, not how they feel themselves to be. By the way, that formation can be both external and internal. So not everyone's identified at birth. Oh. Uh, there are folks where we don't know that there's an issue until puberty. They look perfectly typical at birth, typical boy or typical girl. And when the age comes for pubertal development to happen, either it doesn't happen at all, there aren't the appropriate uh, internal parts to move forward with puberty, or totally shocking to the person in the family, their body starts to change in the opposite direction. So someone who's been assigned boy may start developing breast tissue, for instance, or a young person who's been being brought up as a girl may all of a sudden start getting a deep voice, broad shoulders, the clitoris may start to enlarge and look more male-like. This is obviously very concer sorry, very concerning uh, for and, and startling for a family in addition to the physicians. Sure. Well, um, yes, and so you, you uh, meet with parents and of, of babies that are born intersex or children that during puberty are developing as intersex. What, what are those conversations like? What are the concerns that parents have? <laughs> uh, the conversations are very long and very difficult and often have to be uh, repeated in stages because this is challenging to process and, and very personally difficult for many of the families. Um, for physicians, one of the concerns is making sure that there's any medical health issues on the inside. So sure. obviously we're, we're looking at potential uh, investigations and, and scientific tests in addition to trying to support the family, um, getting psychological assistance for them to help process these uh, changes in how they see themselves, and hooking up folks with support groups nationwide and, and worldwide, which has proven to be very valuable. Um, the concerns that families raise are both what's going on with me, uh, does this represent a cancer that I have right now? Certainly always an issue, and, and the answer is always no. Um, the questions about future fertility for this individual. They may have been raised female and expecting that they were going to bear babies, only to find out that they don't have a uterus, for instance, and that's not going to be possible. Mm. Or a young man who's being raised male, and we find out that the testicles were never formed correctly. He's not going through puberty it may be unlikely that even with advanced technology, he'll make enough sperm to be able to father a child in the more typical fashion. Um, families differ uh, on what's the most important focus for them, but some families are very focused on the question, the possibility that their child will be uh, homosexual and find that very distressing. Other families are pretty comfortable 
with whoever their child is interested in and thinks is cute. So when a baby's born and and the baby has ambiguous genitalia or or both sets of genitalia or whatever, the parents, um, how do they go about deciding with the doctor which gender the baby is? How do you tell whether a baby's boy or girl? That's a terrific question. It's an involved process and can take between a few days and a few weeks. And parenthetically, I'll let you know that all babies get a gender assignment, no matter how uh, unusual their physical appearance. So the parents and doctors do decide which checkbox to check off, if okay. you will. It's what, what maybe is more prominent or what? Well, well there in a, in okay. a second. Okay. Okay. In Germany, uh, there's been a recent um, advancement that parents can actually check off a box that says not yet determined. Oh, really? Which is really helpful for families as things move forward. So the answer to your question are the types of studies that uh, physicians look at are hormone levels in the bloodstream, the chromosomes, which probably everyone learned about in biology class. A typical chromosome set for a typical male is an X and a Y. A typical chromosome set for a typical female is an X and an X. But not everyone's body follows that, that pathway. Uh, we do check for those. Um, imaging studies. Uh, in the past, uh, we used uh, contrast to put it into any apparent vagina or urinary opening and see what was beyond that. More and more these days, those are done with MRI scans, for instance, ultrasounds, or even under direct visualization by our pediatric urology colleagues. Mm-hmm. So they'll actually pass a tiny telescope into that and look and see what the internal anatomy might be. In the most challenging cases, which are the rarest as well, there may actually be a laparoscopy or a telescope into the abdominal cavity to examine what the internal genitalia look like, and in very rare cases, actually biopsies. Interesting. Okay, let me remind listeners real quick that this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air, and we're talking with Dr. Susan Stred, professor of pediatrics at Upstate Medical University's Jocelyn Diabetes Center about intersex, the condition of intersex. So can you give us some background on what leads to intersex? Are there things happening in the embryonic stage of the baby's development? Absolutely. All, all fetuses begin in a sexually neutral or bipotential state with exactly the same internal and external structures. Up to about six weeks of age, no one would know. Wait, six weeks of development? I'm sorry, six weeks okay. of gestation. I'm okay. sorry. Uh, no one would know whether this fetus was destined to be female or destined to be male. Everything looks the same on the outside. Okay. There's a term that doctors use called gonads, and those are the primordial structures that will become either ovaries or testicles. They're absolutely identical at this stage. Okay. There are at least 20 genes that have already been identified involved in sex development. Most of them are not on the X or Y chromosomes. Uh, that's new information in the last 20 years. One example is that, that we can use is that in order to travel from Utica to Syracuse, one's choice of route may depend on the weather, traffic accidents, whether you're visiting a mall or a relative along the way, you don't like driving on a throughway, you don't want to pay the toll. Not everyone will just take the throughway from Utica right. to the I-81 interchange. There are different routes you can take to get here. So from that six-week point, depending on what genes are uh, turned on and working at any given point, the things start to change. So a gonad with a healthy Y chromosome 
and no changes in the other genes we mentioned, will proceed on to become a testicle. We'll start producing testosterone, and that testosterone will start changing that external appearance to look more typically male. If the gonad doesn't have a healthy Y chromosome or has differences in some of those other genes, the gonad will end up developing into an ovary. But that process is slower. That goes over a longer length of time, perhaps even 10 to 20 weeks. So through almost half of the gestational time of the pregnancy, the ovary is moving toward ovariness, and the external genitalia will appear the most female. There's an excellent resource with animated diagrams on the website for the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. It's colloquially known as Sick Kids. I'm including a link in those materials. Uh, oh, we'll put that on our website as yep, well. Today's so, broadcast. Healthlinkonair.org. So folks can actually look at how that early infant development happens. Everything looks sort of neutral to begin with. The same tissue that's going to become a clitoris can become a penis. The same tissue that's going to be labia can become a scrotum. Uh, it's important to know that both males and females have both sets of hormones throughout life. Male-like hormones called androgens and female-like hormones called estrogens. Part of our appearance is based on the balance between those two sets of hormones. During early childhood, those hormones are zero in both boys and girls. But during fetal development and then again after puberty, what we look like depends on a balance of those. So if a fetus is seeing more testosterone than it might have otherwise, the baby will come out looking more male-like. If the fetus doesn't see testosterone and sees only estrogen, that baby is going to look more female-like, no matter what their chromosomes are in the inside, no matter whether they have ovaries or testicles. Interesting. So that's how the, the appearance happens. Okay. So does the condition of intersex, does that set someone up for cancer later in life? That's is a terrific question. The data that science has on that are based on what are called case reports or small series of, of uh, patients. Like that are anecdotal? Or, or a, a small number, 15 okay. persons or 30 persons or 40 persons. And amongst the intersex conditions, there are a few where that cancer risk is indeed high. 20 to 50 years ago, that knowledge was generalized to the whole field so there was a panic in the newborn period. Well, gee, any person with an intersex condition is going to be at high risk for cancer in the future. We have to take those, um, do surgery and take those gonads out right away. Well, as science has learned more, we know that that's not the case. One of the um, intersex conditions is called complete androgen insensitivity syndrome. It's where a person with an X and a Y chromosome makes plenty of testosterone but doesn't have a working receptor for that. Hormones act like keys, and they have to fit in a lock. And these individuals have no lock. So they actually have no testosterone effect in their body. It used to be thought that their testicles had to be removed because they were at risk of cancer. We now know that the risk of cancer in those individuals is very, very low. Are surgery still done today to, at, at birth? That's a moving target. Um, for parents whose infant's genitals don't appear typical, they may be pretty distressed. They may feel it urgent to have their child undergo cosmetic surgery to appear more typical. Uh, and 50 years ago, that was definitely done. Surgical interventions are often driven by the fear of the body looking unusual rather than by any medical necessity. 
the field is trying now to balance the current parental fears and desires with two facts. One is that the young person himself or herself may feel differently in the future and may not identify mm -hmm. with that gender that's decided in that first week of life. With some of the medical conditions, we know that there's a 25% chance, no matter which way parents and physicians decide on a gender assignment in that first week of life, the teen or young adult may say, no, I'm really the other gender. So to have done surgery to cosmetically make the external genitalia appear girl in a person who's going to eventually identify as boy or vice versa is not the right thing to have done. So it's not being done as often today as it used to be. So um, The activist community in particular would very much like to move the whole field in that direction. Okay. But I told you that there were two consequences, and the second one is also important. Parents of newborns don't like to think of their child as an eventual sexually active adult, but some of the surgeries change uh, sexual responsiveness or the ability to have sexual activity uh, in the adult time, uh, and scar tissue can make that challenging. So the parents want what's best for their child, but cosmetic surgery in the newborn period may actually set them up for consequences later on in life that are not the ones that they intended. Well, this has been a very interesting topic. I appreciate you being here. Um, this has been Amber Smith talking about intersex conditions with Dr. Susan Stred, a professor of pediatrics at Upstate Medical University, and this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Next up, Upstate's Chief of Infectious Disease talks about the promise of a Zika vaccine on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air, Amber Smith here with you. The presence of mosquitoes carrying the Zika virus is still prompting travel advisories, and there are a growing number of locally acquired Zika infections in the continental United States, as well as Puerto Rico, Cuba, India, many countries in South and Central America, and a good part of Africa. Here to bring us up to date with Zika and efforts to develop a vaccine is Dr. Stephen Thomas, Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Infectious Diseases Division at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Thomas. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. So let's start with a brief description of um, what Zika is and why it's in the news. I think some people might think it was discovered in Brazil two summers ago, but that's totally not the case, right? That, you're right. That's not the case. So so Zika is the name that they have given to the illnesses that people can develop if they are infected with the Zika virus. Uh, the Zika virus is in a family of viruses known as flaviviruses. Um, okay. they, there's other well-known viruses in that family, uh, such as yellow fever, West Nile virus, the dengue viruses, and Japanese encephalitis virus, to, to name a few. Uh, the virus was actually discovered back in the late uh, the late 40s, and there were sort of uh, stuttering uh, human cases that they uh, um, would document over the next couple of decades. And then it was in around 2007 when the first uh, significant human outbreaks uh, had started. Cases of stuttering? That's what brought it to... No, stuttering cases, meaning they would see, uh, they would see a, a group of people that became ill 
um, but a small group of people. Small, and then okay. there would be nothing for a while, and then they'd see another a group of people become ill. Um, and, and that kind of went on for a number of years. But uh, in 2007, in Micronesia, there was a very large outbreak. Um, and that, that is sort of when uh, Zika first started to make its appearance as a, as a human pathogen of, of consequence. But the, all the headlines happened a couple years ago in Brazil because there was a, a large epidemic there too, right? Right. So that's really what um, what kind of put Zika on, on the map. And, and the, the primary reason for that is that the, um, the transmission and the number of people infected and the number of adverse outcomes because of infection uh, were just really overwhelming. Um, and, and, you know, that outbreak that started uh, in 20, you know, 2015, um, has uh, prompted people to go back and look at the previous outbreaks, like the outbreak in French Polynesia in 2013, the outbreak in uh, um, uh, Micronesia back in around 2007. Um, so really the, the epidemic in 20, that started in 2015 is what has uh, put Zika on the map and gotten okay. everyone very interested. Do we know uh, everything about how it's spread? We, we, we do not know more than we know. Okay. <laughs> um, so... You know, like a lot of the other flaviviruses, the, probably the primary mode of transmission is when an infected mosquito uh, takes a blood meal um, from a susceptible person, so a person who's not immune to the virus. So, so as, you get bit by a mosquito. Yeah, the, the, the mosquito has the virus uh, inside of it, and as it lands on your skin and probes for a blood source, the virus travels down, uh, gets into your circulation, replicates, and you potentially may become ill. So may become ill. A lot of people don't even know they've been infected because the they have no symptoms, right? Right, right. We believe, in, and this is something we're we're still actively studying to try and learn more about. But we believe the vast majority of people, about eighty percent of people who are infected with Zika, do not become symptomatic. They don't develop uh, an illness. And so they wouldn't even know they've been infected unless they had a blood test. So there is a blood test that can. There are, yeah. Okay. Um, and then. In that remaining 20%, the vast majority of that 20% of people will have a very mild illness. So they'll get fever, muscle aches, they might get a rash, their eyes might turn red for a little bit, but they'll, they will recover and they'll be fine. But a small subset of that 20%, um, people can go on to develop very severe neurologic um, problems, uh, things like Guillain-Barre, um, you can have problems with the spinal cord, uh, and in some cases those can be, uh, those can be life-threatening, um, you know, adverse outcomes. And then, of course, the most devastating uh, um, uh, clinical outcome that we see is when a fetus is infected in utero. Uh, uh, so the pregnant mother gets infected, the virus passes to the fetus, and then the fe a lot of uh, abnormalities can occur. Um, We've people. seen the the videos with the babies with the small heads and right, right. So yeah, so microcephaly is one of the uh, potential. Um, uh, it, it's in it's in a syndrome they they call uh, congenital Zika syndrome. Uh, but there's a lot of abnormalities that can that can happen. But microcephaly, so the s small head, the damaged and small um, brain. Uh, there can be um, eye abnormalities. There can be abnormalities in the musculoskeletal system. Um, and, you know, even children that are um, uh, born uh, appearing, quote-unquote, normal, uh, they're finding out that they are having developmental um, abnormalities uh, later oh, in that life. That show up later. Okay. Yeah, so, and I think that most people would agree that we really, um, we're probably looking at the tip of the iceberg in terms of the, uh, you know, the adverse clinical outcomes that Zika can cause. And as these 
you know, it's been a few thousand children that have been uh, born to infected mothers and that are having, um, uh, um, you know, these bad outcomes. As they follow them over time, the, the, the number of developmental abnormalities is just going to, to grow. And so it's really, it's really been a devastating uh, disease for that, for that. So how do we, at this point, how do, prevention is the thing that we're doing now as best we can. How do you prevent yourself from getting the Zika infection? Yeah, so you can do things uh, um, that we'd call like personal protective measures. So you can try to um, avoid uh, being in contact with the mosquito. So you can wear long sleeves, uh, long sleeve shirts or, or pants. You can um, use DEET or some other mosquito repellent that you put on your skin. Uh, you can try to eliminate potential mosquito breeding sites from around your house. Mm-hmm. So anywhere that there's standing water, uh, mosquitoes can uh, uh, lay eggs and make baby mosquitoes. <laughs> so you want to get rid of standing water. Um, you put screens on the windows, you know, anything that can, can separate you from the mosquito. But Now, we, yeah. we don't need to do that in central New York for Zika, though. No. At least not yet. Uh, no, we don't. We don't. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, we actually don't have the mosquito that can but transmit. someone from here could go to Florida mm-hmm. or... Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And, you know, in a lot of the places, you know, so it's nice for me to talk about personal protective measures, but in a lot of these places where Zika has... Uh, you know, been uh, been transmitted at a high level. Uh, you know, these are economically disadvantaged um, mm. uh, peoples, and so to say, oh, put screens on and change your wardrobe and easy. do yeah, it's just not yeah. gonna, it's not gonna happen. So you know, uh, governments and ministries of health, um, they are spraying. You may have seen this on the news: the people with the big uh, backpacks and mm-hmm. they're spraying this fog, and you know, they're trying to kill both adult mosquitoes as well as uh, uh, try and kill some of the baby. Um, uh, the baby are developing uh, mosquitoes, but it's really, really difficult uh, for those two things to adequately, uh, those two interventions to adequately control an outbreak like, uh, you know, like what we've seen here. Okay, well, I've got some more f- questions, but first let me remind listeners that this is Upstate's Health Link on Air, and we're talking with Dr. Stephen Thomas, Professor of Medicine and the Chief of the Infectious Diseases Division at Upstate Medical University, and the topic is Zika. Um, so I want to ask about your background because you joined Upstate last fall after right. working um, in the Army. Right. So tell me about what your work was right. there. Yeah. So I was uh, I retired from the uh, the United States Army Medical Corps in October of 2016, and I was an infectious diseases officer. But my my primary mission was not clinical care; it was uh, working at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, and um, we call it Rare. And RARE's been around since the late 1800s, and the, the mission of that organization is to protect the U.F. service member from infectious diseases oh. like, <laughs> like Zika. So um, we, you know, try to uh, anticipate what threats might be out there to our deploying forces, and then we try to make countermeasures against those. And, and vaccines are, um, I mean, they've been demonstrated in many, uh, in many ways to, to be the best uh, uh, way to try to protect people from infectious diseases. So, yeah, so in, you know, late 2015, uh, a couple of us had gotten together um, and uh, we were kind of reading the writing on the wall that we thought this uh, Zika epidemic was really going to take off and that it was going to place service members at, at risk, not only deploying service members, but, um, you know, service members who are permanently stationed in places where Zika was being uh, transmitted sure. to include female service members of childbearing age. So, um, yeah, so we started to uh, we started to work on developing uh, potential prototype vaccines. 
Uh, and then we were very fortunate that um, uh, Colonel Nelson Michael, who uh, really spends most of his time doing HIV vaccine development, um, he was working on the on the Zika vaccine project, and and one of his colleagues, Dr. Dan Baruch, who's at uh, um, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, um, Dan was also working on Zika uh, vaccines at the same time, and so a single phone call on one afternoon uh, created the uh, uh, the collaboration, and we were able to. You know, we were able to take a couple of prototypes and, and do some of the very early, what we call preclinical, so pre-human um, work and move very fast and, you know, demonstrate sort of proof of concept that this vaccine might potentially um, have some clinical benefit. Uh, Does it have people. a name or, or yeah, something? It's uh, ZPIV is one of the names. So Zika purified inactivated virus uh, vaccine. So that's where you take, you take the virus, you kill the virus, purify it, and... Uh, uh, and then you can deliver it as a vaccine, and like a shot, like a, like a flu shot yeah, or something. Yeah, okay. yeah. And I mean, we we chose that construct for a number of reasons. Uh, the first is that we knew that um, women of childbearing age and potentially pregnant women would be the at least initial focus of vaccine development uh, efforts, and that is a special population in terms of. Um, uh, making sure that you have as safe a product as possible. And so we don't like to give live virus vaccines right. to, to pregnant women. So um, so that was one reason. The other is that we had experience with this. So the Japanese encephalitis vaccine that's licensed in the United States right now, um, that is a, a, a JEPIV, so Japanese encephalitis purified inactivated vaccine. And we had invented that and developed it with a corporate uh, with a corporate partner. And so we kind of, and you remember me saying Japanese encephalitis is also a flavivirus. Right. So we've kind of had some so experience. Yeah, yeah. So we had some experience with this um, in the past. So, so how, you know, how does it work when it when it goes in the body? What does it do in the body? Yeah, so um, when it goes in the body, the body's ideally, <laughs> first of all, it would be safe. And so you wouldn't have any adverse reactions to um, to the... Uh, to the mother or yeah, the to, to the fetus antigen. or whatever, yeah. yeah. But ideally, the um, you, it would be safe. You would not become sick, but the body's immune system would remember that it had seen uh, that part of the Zika virus previously, and it would create an, uh, an immune response uh, to that, so that, and it would remember that it had seen that, so that then let's say you go on your cruise, you go on your vacation somewhere, and a mosquito infected with Zika virus lands and bites you, the virus would enter your body, and the immune system would wake up and say, we've seen this virus before, send out the troops, and the body's immune system would um, basically defeat the virus and not allow the virus to replicate. Um, so the person wouldn't even know that, that this would was be going ideal. on? That would be ideal. I mean, so that's, I mean, that's the ideal goal is you want to make a vaccine that will uh, completely neutralize the virus so that the person doesn't even know they've been infected, they don't become sick. But, you know, another potential benefit of vaccines and, you know, I think people sometimes think of vaccines in a qualitative way. You know, it's either all or none. It either, you know, it either protects completely or it doesn't protect at all. But it's, it's more of a spectrum. And so, you know, I personally believe that if, if you could develop a vaccine that could attenuate or lessen the severity of the disease, that that's a valuable public health tool. Um, so if, if you could develop a vaccine that, you know, reduced the likelihood or reduced the severity of a congenital defect, 
that would be an important be, public health wow. contribution. It's fascinating. Know? So. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time. Um, this has been Amber Smith talking about the Zika virus and efforts to find a vaccine with Dr. Stephen Thomas, a professor of medicine and chief of the Infectious Diseases Division at Upstate Medical University for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. Bad me, bad you, or a useful question. Well, folks, two days ago I was at an intense meeting with a bunch of colleagues about a tough issue for us. At one point, someone got provocative to me, and I said something I regret to her, who I usually really like overall, but at that moment I was instantly steamed and out it popped with no real warning. And then others piped up and piled on. Do I wish I could take my piece back? You betcha. But can't. So now what? Well, first I've been paying attention to what I've been thinking since. Notice I've been getting down on myself, blaming myself, feeling bad about myself. Bad rich, you should be ashamed. Then I asked myself, is blaming myself useful? Hmm, well, other than that little bit that's useful for taking responsibility and apologies, apologizing to my friend and colleagues for my part, new no, just makes me feel bad about myself. So, I stopped blaming me, watched my thinking and feeling to see what happened. And... Well, I felt better about myself. <laughs> I found a good chunk of me blaming my friend with, well, she started it, etc., etc., etc. So I asked myself, is blaming her useful? Well, yes, useful helping me feel self-righteous and superior, which does feel a lot better than blaming me, but ultimately... No, it just keeps a bad moment going. So stop that and watched again what happened to my thinking and feeling. And surprise, I discovered wonder, curiosity about the problem that got me and all us usually level-headed people spouting off. What was it about this topic under discussion that was so emotionally intense for our group that we avoided it and our feelings about it by spouting rather than listening and problem-solving? I don't know yet, but now I'm planning for our next meeting and what I, and hopefully we, can do differently. Be more patient. Deep breath, deep breath with the lurking frustration over our differences here. And instead of using that energy, that frustrated energy, to blame me or blame you, use it to listen, understand each other, and just maybe solve the problem instead. Good luck to us. I'm Dr. Rich, a work in progress, O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in.
Coming up next, nutrition for your dogs and cats. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Thank you for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. We're going to discuss healthy nutrition for pets with Christina Pope, the director of the Health Sciences Library at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Christina. Thanks Thank for you. being here. So what do we need to know about pet nutrition? Well, I think the most important thing we need to know about pet nutrition is that it's very much like people nutrition. Okay. And that a lot of the concerns um, that we have for ourselves we also have for our pets. And it's important to remember that our pet's nutritional needs are very dependent upon the type of pet that we have, what breed they are, their age, and their level of activity. Okay, and we're talking dogs and cats. Yeah, we'll we're talking dogs that. and cats. Okay, so do dogs and cats, I mean, their um, digestive system and their bodies are different than ours. Mm-hmm. So um, what's different with with dogs. So, to- yeah, so dogs are omnivores. But which ca- means they eat everything. They can eat just about everything. Yeah, plants, animals, algae, fungi, bacteria. Huh, okay. All of these are sort of okay <laughs> for your dog. Uh, but cats are obligate carnivores. And what that means is they really need a diet that consists mainly of animal tissues. Okay. Meat, they have to have meat. They have to have meat. Okay. Yeah. Um, In fact, our studies have shown that cats develop their dietary preferences while in the womb, which helps to explain why why their eating habits can be very hard to change. Hmm. So if you have a picky eater, blame their mother. Okay. All right. Um, Well, do dogs and cats, uh, like with humans, um, humans need protein, fat, and carbohydrates. Mm Mm-hmm. Are those sort of the macronutrients? Is that the same with dogs and cats? Not, not really. Um, protein, protein is really the thing that our pets need. Okay. Um, and carbohydrates are okay, but for example, if you like to run, everybody talks about carb carb loading. Carb loading. Right? Uh huh. You don't carb load your dog when you run together, right? Okay. Okay. Well, um, one thing that I hear about frequently are um, pet food recalls. Mm-hmm. Um, pet recalls are a really big concern. Uh, in the last um, in the last thirty days, at least six recalls of food for food and pet treats, uh, and one leading pet food ingredient supplier is actually facing criminal charges for making pets sick. Or well. You see in the news, uh, the pet food, it could have um, bacteria. Uh, It can be contaminated with other things. Um, So because there's not um, a high degree of regulation in our pet food Mm -hmm. industry, and because so many of the pet foods are um, packaged in other countries, this is, it's a big concern. Um, commercial pet food is a big business with 
big profits. And pet owners really need to become educated in how to look past the marketing to make good choices for their pets. So how do we how do we purchase a safe food or mm-hmm. treat? I mean, how do we make that decision? So there, there are two things. One, you, you certainly have to be aware of the recalls that are in play. And I have some good resources that we'll put on the webpage. Yes, we'll yes. put it on the healthlinkonair.org. Mm-hmm. And then the other important thing to do is read your labels. Okay, food labels just like on... Food labels, just like people food, our pet foods have labels. and But they are different from people labels uh, in that they talk about things like uh, meat. And they talk about... Rather than like calories or and, well, they have um, they have calories too. Okay, uh, but they have they have different naming rules. So, for example, in people food, if you buy something that's organic, and you pay a premium price for your organic foods, there are regulations in place that guarantee to you that that food was fed certain things or that it's really it's organic. really organic, right? That's not true in the pet food industry. So if your pet food says organic, it doesn't really mean anything. Huh. Except, okay. yeah. Um, and then there are other some naming rules. So with pet food, if you buy something that says tuna cat food, by law, that cat food has to be 95% tuna. But if that label says cat food with tuna, it only has to be 3% tuna. Wow, that's tricky. That's tricky. That's That's really tricky. Um, And then there's the 25% rule, where if the the manufacturer, manufacturer can say chicken formula cat food or dinner, chicken Chicken dinner. dinner. So then it would contain 25%. Wow. So that's very different than what you're going to see in a human label. Yes, or what? It, maybe you end up buying something not realizing that it's not what you think you're buying. Exactly. So at what point do we just go back and make our own pet food and feed them real chicken or real tuna? Or mm-hmm. I mean, so that's becoming popular, or a lot of people are talking about going raw. And you really need to consider the needs of your pet um, and your lifestyle. When you buy a commercial pet food, it's often kibble Mm -hmm. um, or a can. And if it's kibble, I can give my dog or my cat a cup or whatever I'm feeding, put it on the floor and go to work for the day and come back if there's still a little kibble there, we're good. But if I'm serving uh, my pet a raw diet, that really means raw. And so you have to uh, make sure that your kitchen is very clean. You are not going to leave that down all day. So your pet will end up having a um, prescribed eating period, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it is. And then that food has to go back in the refrigerator. Right. Or, or, okay. or not. 
when you buy a commercial pet food, the, especially the premium brands, but most, most pet foods are complete diets. So they do contain vitamins and minerals and other things that our pets need to be healthy. If you are looking to do a raw diet, you are responsible for making sure that that's a well-balanced mm. nutritional diet for your pet. And you can't just give them the same thing every day, a, a piece of chicken here or no, no, just like get you. everything they need. Yeah, because you would just not eat a piece of chicken a day. Right. You know, you have to have your vegetables, you have to have your complex carbs, you have to make sure you have the right vitamins. The same thing with your pet. Their needs are just a little different from yours. So if a raw diet is something that you want to pursue, you definitely need to speak with your veterinarian about that. Yeah, interesting. Okay, let me remind listeners that this is Upstate's Health Link on Air, and we're talking with the director of Upstate Medical University's Health Sciences Library, Christina Pope, about pet nutrition. So, um, boy, this makes it really difficult <laughs> to go to the store and get the right uh, it, the right food. It does. Um, so help us understand... Um, what are some of the things that we should be looking for in terms of um, treats for pets, um, choosing healthy treats? Mm -hmm. So just like people, a pet's treats should not exceed about 10% of their daily caloric intake. Okay. And so, of course, that's going to depend upon the size of your pet. Uh, commercial pet treats can can be good. But again, you really need to read those labels. And you need to be aware that it's pet foods and pet treats that have all of these recalls going on. Okay. Um, commercial pet treats also can have additives. And they can be very expensive. Pets, they're like us. They like apples and oranges, berries, Green beans, pumpkin, Car carrots. carrots, peanut butter, peanut butter. Who doesn't love to give their dog peanut butter? Uh, my German Shepherd dog drools for carrots. And that's a healthy. That's a very healthy snack. snack. It's somewhat challenging because I can no longer eat a carrot by myself. <laughs> one right. for me, one right. for him. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a good one. Um, and then there's some foods that definitely have to be avoided for dogs and cats. Yes. So just about, I think, everybody knows chocolate. Chocolate's a no-no. Chocolate is a no-no. Um, grapes. Grapes okay. are bad. Um, and grapes includes, includes raisins and currants. Okay. And the thing with grapes is that they, they don't know why it's bad. So sometimes people will say, well, I feed my dog grapes, and there's no problem. Well, okay, um, and that's a, that's a, nat a natural variation. Right? But if you're not feeding your pet grapes now, you really just don't start. Okay. It's just not All worth right. the risk. Um, one of the things we need to be cautious of these, of these days is xylitol. Xylitol is a new sweetener on the market about a few years ago that came on the market. And you'll find it in gum and mints. Um, you'll find it in peanut butter. Wow. So and it can cause liver damage. Read those labels. Read those for... labels. Okay. Uh, and be and extra cautious with things like xylitol because 
on a given brand, it may be present in some flavors, but not in others. Okay. Well, I want to have you uh, explain how the library at Upstate got involved in the Healthy Pets Project, because a lot of this information is um, comes from a, a workshop that people can sign yes. up for. So yeah. a Healthy Pets Project, what mm-hmm. is that? So the Healthy Pet Project is based on the fact that the top 10 things that go wrong with us are the top 10 things that go wrong with our pets. Okay. And we've received funding from the National Library of Medicine and the National Institutes of Health to develop a series of workshops, one of which is our nutrition workshop. And then we have a basics and an advanced skills. And the workshops are developed and instructed um, through a partnership with the Health Sciences Library at Upstate Medical University, the Fayetteville Free Library, and the Veterinary Medical Center of Central New York. Okay. The workshops are free. Uh, information on which workshops are coming up are on our webpage. And that's healthypetproject.org. Dot O-R-G. Okay. And we are happy to come to you. Oh, so you'll set up? We'll set up. For so groups? If, and- mm-hmm. if you have a group, uh, you know, a faith-based group, uh, a reading club, whatever it might be, you know, you can contact us and we will come to you. Oh, good to know. Well, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. This has been Amber Smith talking about pet nutrition with Health Sciences Library Director Christina Pope for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. We talk about accessibility as something concrete and achievable. We have doors that allow people in wheelchairs the same access as others. But Maxine Sussman, a poet from New Jersey who also teaches at Rutgers, has noticed something about the doors in our hospitals and clinics. Her poem, Doors to the Pavilion, is short, but very much to the point. So heavy, the entry. The weak with canes cannot manage it. The revolving door. They wait for someone to come, push it for them. The elevator door, so massive, closes too soon. The bathroom door, wide for a wheelchair, but hard to pull open, pull shut, twist the big lock into place. So far to reach from the faucet to the paper towels. A long walk, coffee machine to appointment desk. A long walk from the door for exams to the door for treatments at the far other end. Each of the women sits waiting for someone to open a heavy door and call her name. Thank you for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us next week when we get an update on the opioid and heroin crisis, and a registered dietitian nutritionist teaches us how to read a nutrition label. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org, or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.